Well, welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. Uh, this is Stuart Haynes, host of the iFormerX podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Many ambulatory care and community pharmacists are aware of the benefits of motivational interviewing, a way of engaging with patients that's intended to facilitate behavior change that aligns with the patient's goals. It's a strategy that's been systematically evaluated in a number of studies, and when executed well, it can really make a difference in patient outcomes. Another strategy that is commonly recommended in clinical practice guidelines is generally referred to as shared decision-making, basically a process of engaging a patient in a conversation about treatment options and deciding together what the best option might be based on the patient's values and preferences. But most of us have never been trained in shared decision-making. How exactly should the process be conducted? Are there tools a clinician can use to facilitate a more efficient and effective interaction with a patient when shared decision-making is appropriate? Personally, I've never seen anything published on this topic, so when I saw a recently published article in JAMA Internal Medicine about a shared decision-making model to facilitate discussions about anticoagulants and stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation, I knew we needed to review this study on iFormerX. And here to discuss the results of this study are Dr. Ashley Meredith and Dr. Chandler Howell. Dr. Meredith is Clinical Associate Professor and Ambulatory Care Clinical Specialist on faculty at Purdue University and based on the Indianapolis campus. And Dr. Howell is a PGY2 Ambulatory Care and Academia Pharmacy Practice Resident with Eskenazi Health. Ashley and Chandler, it's great to have you both here on the iFormerX podcast as first-time contributors. Welcome. Stuart, thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to get to chat with you today. And personally, I'm really excited to be more involved with iFormRx. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here to discuss this topic today. So Ashley uh, Chandler, I'd like to start with a, a patient case. So I want you to imagine you're seeing HR today, who is a 63-year-old male who is here for routine follow-up visit for blood pressure management. And he currently takes herbicidin hydrochlorothiazide combination product every morning and amlodipine at bedtime. And as a routine part of your visit, you always remeasure the patient's blood pressure and pulse after conducting the interview. And while his blood pressure is really very good, uh, 118 over 64, you notice that his pulse is rather irregular. And indeed, it's irregularly irregular. And since an irregular pulse has not been noted in the patient's medical records before, you ask about symptoms such as dizziness and lightheadedness and palpitations, easy fatigability or sudden loss of vision, loss of strength or difficulty speaking. And a patient denies all of these symptoms. Uh, and in fact, he's been completely unaware that he had an irregular heartbeat. Uh, the patient's last EKG was done more than two years ago, so you ask the primary care physician to order one, which confirms your suspicion that the patient is in atrial fibrillation. The primary care physician asks you to get this patient started on anticoagulation therapy as soon as possible. 
So this scenario is not uncommon um, given the prevalence of atrial fibrillation within older adults and particularly in patients with hypertension. You know, many patients don't experience many symptoms. And so I'm curious of what are some of your thoughts that are going through your mind at this point? Uh, what might be your approach to anticoagulation therapy and stroke prevention? Well, you're right, Stuart. This is not an uncommon position for a patient, and we experience this all the time, both inpatient and outpatient, as often the symptoms can mimic those of comorbidities uh, that may even lead to the root cause of the atrial fibrillation. Many things are running through my mind uh, due to the lack of any prior history and given the current pandemic we are in. I'm wondering if the patient has had COVID-19 as we are seeing a lot of new onset arrhythmias in these particular patients. Uh, also, I was wondering if the patient also has undocumented alcohol use disorder or another substance abuse disorder, as taking these substances acutely can often lead to atrial fibrillation. And we have seen an increase in all of these disorders during the pandemic. Atrial fibrillation is also associated with common medications that medications that patients sometimes forget due to them just not being chronic in nature. Corticosteroids and Zofran are often examples of these particular medications. Although even a small risk, even the patient's hydrochlorothiazide can run the risk. The need for a thorough assessment and questioning to the patient is running through my mind. Another big question running through my mind is what the patient's financial and insurance situation currently is. If anticoagulation is going to be needed, DOACs, even though they are the most convenient, they often are the most expensive medications as well for this particular treatment. These are the main factors running through my head as cardioversion is not going to be on the table likely today, and this is just due to the fact that the patient, we do not know how long he's been in atrial fibrillation. We are probably looking at giving the four weeks of anticoagulation before considering cardioversion to minimize the risk of stroke during a cardioversion, given the current information that we have. Some other things that I'd be thinking about at this point would be, are there other undiagnosed conditions that could be contributing? So we know things like hyperthyroidism pose an increased risk for AFib. Chandler did mention the risk of new onset AFib following COVID-19 infection, but did he maybe have a different type of infection like influenza? We know new onset AFib can occur following this type of infection as well. So then I'd begin thinking, okay, so does the patient even need anticoagulation? I know the PCP asked that we get him started, but is it necessary? Is it in his best interest? So I'd start by thinking through what is his CHADS2 VAS score? And given the patient information that we have, we see that he has a score of one for his history of hypertension. He has really no other relevant past medical history that we know of, and he's only 63, so his age is not yet a risk factor. So given this, he really would be considered low risk for stroke due to his AFib. And so various providers will have different thoughts as to whether or not anticoagulation is even necessary, um, as moderate or high risk of a stroke comes when that CHADS too vast score for men is two or more. So some may argue that because his score of one comes from hypertension rather than vascular disease, this is actually a higher clinical risk and anticoagulation should be used. So that's going to be one piece of my consideration. And then I'd also like to consider what this patient's risk of bleeding is should we start him on anticoagulation. And so again, given only the information from the initial case, he has a HASBLED score of 1 from hypertension, which is still relatively low risk. So 
To me, this really becomes the perfect example of a time when shared decision-making is likely to be beneficial. Do the potential risks of therapy outweigh the potential benefits? If anticoagulation is really in this patient's best interest, what is the best choice of treatment? As Chandler alluded to, the patients that we frequently work with in our practice site often have barriers to accessing medications due to financial reasons. So the ability to get an affordable product, whether it's through insurance or another type of assistance program, is going to be a determining factor for us. But then beyond that, I would be thinking about and discussing with the patient things like, how adherent is he to his current treatment? What would be the burden of an additional medication, both in terms of his schedule and finances? What's his renal and liver function? Are there interactions to be aware of? What concerns does he have about the potential risks? I could go on and on, but really recognizing that he truly falls into this gray area of whether or not anticoagulation is likely to be beneficial or harmful and taking the time to discuss with him these considerations so that he can be a part of the decision that is made. So Chandler, let's talk about the results of the study that you reviewed for iFormerX. Uh, the study is entitled Assessment of Shared Decision-Making for Stroke Prevention in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, a Randomized Clinical Trial, or what the authors dubbed the 4DM4AFib Trial. The study was published online ahead of print in JAMA Internal Medicine in July 2020, we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? So this was a multi-center randomized clinical trial that looked at comparing the standard of care to a shared decision-making model for choosing an anticoagulation for patients. Um, these patients were at risk for stroke due to atrial fibrillation. They use a tool called an anticoagulation choice shared decision-making tool, which uses the CHADS 2VAS score to then calculate the risk of stroke, and then it compares those anticoagulation options by characteristics such as routes of administration, monitoring and reversibility, um, things of this nature. Eligible patients had to be at least 18 years old, and they had to be diagnosed with non-valular AFib, and then have a CHADS-VAS2 score of at least one for men and two for women. Most patients in the study were already taking an anticoagulant at the time of the encounter, and no significant results were found in the primary outcome looking at the quality of SDM and anticoagulant treatment decisions and for patients' experience and patient knowledge. However, significant differences were seen with the higher provider satisfaction score and likelihood of recommending shared decision-making in the intervention arm. And there was also no difference in the length of encounters between the two groups as well. Uh, so, Ashley, one of the strengths of this study is the randomized control design, but I'm wondering what you feel are some of the other strengths and if there are any sources of bias or confounders that you think might have impacted the results. So beyond being a randomized controlled trial, the researchers did evaluate multiple aspects that are important to consider with shared decision-making. So one of the concerns that's often raised when the 
idea about implementing shared decision-making occurs is that this patient encounter will take longer. So this study actually looked at the encounter length between the two arms and found no significant difference, which helps to directly address this concern. They also had providers and patients complete the post-encounter survey immediately following the encounter, which would help to minimize their recall bias. And there were some other strengths to the study too. The study also put a large amount of emphasis on the practitioner's experiences with the tool. This is a strength as many studies that we have seen have shown that one of the biggest reasons they are often not used have to do with the perception that the physicians have on them, and that's in the aspects of this taking both longer and making the physician visit itself be a little bit harder. So I do think one of the major confounders of this study is the selection bias of participants. So the providers could simply choose to not enroll eligible participants. Because of this, more than three quarters of the participants were patients that had been on anticoagulation already, rather than being a new start. So what we see is that the patients likely had a higher baseline knowledge and level of satisfaction with their anticoagulant medication. It makes me wonder if there would have been differences in the results related particularly to the patient experience and knowledge if there was a higher percentage of participants that were new starts to anticoagulation. So, Ashley Chandler, let's return to our case. Recall that the patient was discovered to be in atrial fibrillation during a routine blood pressure visit. Patient has no symptoms, but is at low risk for a stroke. Let's assume that he's got good renal function and isn't taking any other medications that would otherwise uh, cause drug interaction. And he's a good candidate for any of the medications that we could select. How would you approach the discussion with this patient? What factors would you be considering when making the treatment decision? So with any decision, the patient definitely needs to be included in the process. That's at the core idea of the shared decision-making model. I'd approach this decision with HR by exploring how he feels about frequency of administration, any needs for monitoring, any risk for bleeding and other adverse effects the availability of a reversal agent, um, kind of what's the most important to the patient. He's going to have a problem with consistency with his diet. And so, Stuart, I think the bigger conversation is the idea of using shared decision-making overall beyond anticoagulation. So shared decision-making is the approach to communication that can really be used in any patient interaction that requires a decision from multiple options, particularly if there are differences across those options. I know that I personally use shared decision-making when discussing diabetes treatment options and contraceptive methods, and chronic pain management is another area that commonly engages in shared decision-making. So when we're talking about utilizing shared decision-making, it's essential to assess the patient's preferences across a variety of medication considerations, not just efficacy or whatever characteristic that you as the provider feel is most important. So whether or not a shared decision-making tool is used, one of the first steps is engaging in choice talk with the patient. So letting the patient know that options exist, explaining why having a choice is important and allowing the patient to emphasize their individual preferences. So from there, you can then move to providing more detailed information about the options that the patient is most interested in, making sure to summarize the information 
information frequently and using approaches like the teach back method to understand what key pieces of information the patient is actually hearing and understanding. There usually is going to be some back and forth between information sharing and deliberation as the patient is working towards making a decision based on their own perceptions. So as the provider, it's really important to support this consideration of preferences and the decision that is being made. I think that something that providers and patients often feel is that a decision has to be made today, right now. The patient is here. I can't let them walk out of here without making some type of treatment change. But we need to recognize that a valid decision can be to not make a decision today and take the time that's needed for the patient to gather more information, talk to important support people, and just simply consider the impact of the decision that that they may or may not want to make. So at the end of the day, while we may not have great evidence showing that using shared decision-making actually improves clinical outcomes, there's a growing body of data showing that its use does improve patient and provider satisfaction with the encounter and that it can improve the patient and provider relationship and that patients are more engaged in their care. So to me, that's enough of a reason to continue to use shared decision-making in my patient encounters. So Chandler, Ashley, I want to thank you both for being guests today on the iFormerX podcast and discussing stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation and best practices for engaging them in a shared decision-making process. And these principles apply to all patient encounters where there are many drug therapy options in which we want to engage patients in helping us make the best decision possible. Well, Are these things that you do in your practice? Tell us what you do. How do you engage patients in shared decision-making? Do you use tools? Do you have techniques that you like to use? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free. If you listen to the iFormerX podcast regularly, you probably already know that you can earn board recertification credit for this program through the American Pharmacists Association Board Recertification Program for Ambulatory Care Specialists. To learn more about APHA's Ambulatory Care Board Prep and Recertification Program, click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. Lastly, a special thanks to Cheng Yuet from JPS Health Network in Fort Worth, Texas. Dr. Yuet recently joined the iFormerX Advisory Board. In addition to writing commentaries and participating in the iFormerX podcast, Chang has actively spread the word about iFormerX to all of her Twitter followers. So thank you, Chang, for helping us build this community of practice. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends. 